Hello again and welcome to another episode of The Shift. This is episode 14 where today we will hear from Brendan Moore who is speaking on dementia, capacity and decision making in aged care. Brendan is the General Manager of Policy, Research and Information at Alzheimer's Australia New South Wales and has worked in a variety of roles in the social service areas in both government and non-government sectors, aged care, health and disability, research, policy and program delivery. Now here's Brendan talking about who decides. Um, Thank you for the introduction, Stella, and thank you for the invitation to come and talk to you today about a pretty important topic at this time in the uh, aged care reform space. Um, And it's obviously um, a great pleasure to be here with you um, and have a great relationship between our two organisations. Um, we, um, you know, forecast there's a dire shortage of nurses in the future. Um, there's going to be a need for much more of you than is what is sitting in this room because of the very sheer ageing of our population. And we've um, sung from the same song sheet as the Nurses Association on issues recently like the nurses in residential aged care. So. What we fight for is often what you fight for. We want better conditions for you and we want more of you and we um, often have common interests. So it's great when our interests can align. But there's also the other aspect of it is that um, because we're a consumer advocacy organisation, we also um, believe there's a role to educate and inform. And so that's what I'm here today to talk to you about, if you like, is educating and informing you about a particular issue that's relevant for the people we represent, but it's also relevant for you. It impacts on your day-to-day practice. So I'm talking about um, capacity and decision-making. So uh, this works quite well. Good. Okay. So I'm going to cover um, four things today that I'll get through in the time that's available to me. Um, I know I'm standing between you and a glorious, warm, sunny Friday afternoon, and you're probably dying to be somewhere else, as am I. But no, I'm really happy to be here. Um, so the four things are root cause analysis. I'll, just, I'll actually get you guys doing something. I don't know if you've been sitting here all day being lectured to, but I'm actually going to get you guys doing some work this afternoon. Boo, they say he's going to make me work. And then we're going to look a bit more in depth around the issues of dementia and capacity. And then some um, practical tips around supporting clients to make decisions uh, and um, finish up, hopefully on time, maybe a little bit early. So this was previously designed as a presentation where people were at tables. You're not at tables. But if I can get you talking with twos or threes, a little exercise which is a root cause analysis and it's to unleash your inner three-year-old. So one of you has to ask why related questions. So one of you acts as the initiator of a question and someone answers, then you have to respond with a why, hence the three-year-old. So you might start with a question like, why is dementia and capacity an issue in my practice as a nurse? Get an answer and then ask a why question. Get an answer, why, why, why. Then I'm just going to ask you to feed back to me and the rest of the group in five minutes where you got to at the end of the fifth question. Okay, go. Start talking. (laughs) Is anyone ready to share their fifth why? What answer did you get? Anyone? Anyone? Any volunteers? Don't make me pick on you. Anyone willing to share? People with dementia can't explain or understand what's happening very well. Anyone else? Something different? 
Person with dementia can't trust anyone. Okay, anyone else? Confused? Nature of the disease? Okay. Anyone else? Argumentative, non-compliant. Is that the nurses or the person with dementia? Checking where the exit is. <laughs> is there anyone who's got an answer that actually relates to your system or your practices? Anyone got an answer that's not related to the person with dementia being the problem? Yes. Staffing, okay. So there's a different perspective there. Thank you. So you can see how people will conceive this issue differently. Traditionally, you will focus on the problem of the person with dementia. But someone has thankfully said, well, actually, it's not the person's fault that they have dementia. It's actually something that we can deal with and there's a problem in our systems and processes. Thank you. All right, so some introductory comments about decision-making in aged care. So let me just run you through some uh, context. And so at the moment, you understand we've got a policy shift to consumer-directed care. And what we believe is that that might be an illusion for many disadvantaged groups in society unless governments dedicate more resources to promote the decision-making capacity of older Australians. And our, the former CEO of the um, Alzheimer's Australia National Office, Glenn Rees, um, spoke about consumer-directed care, consumer care for at least eight years before he retired uh, last year. And so he talked a lot about um, the issues of stigma, social isolation, lack of trust, contributing to um, issues around use of mainstream services, and ability to take advantage of options around consumer-directed care. And so if you think about those kind of people and the issues around cognitive loss, using things like a gateway or an assessment function, referral services, they're not going to cater necessarily to the people as well as they could. So there's already some inbuilt problems there. But also there's the logic of CDC, but by its very nature is a process of decision making aligned with a person's choices and needs. Therefore, there's a built-in assumption that the person has made good life choices throughout their life. And you and I know that we don't always make good life choices. So is it reasonable to expect that a person is going to do that when they've got dementia or when they're accessing a consumer-directed care package? And so what we also realised was that there's going to be an increased need for the case management and support from appropriately trained staff, which you guys have just talked about the issues around that for you. Um, and then... One of the um, critical things that um, we talk about is that people with um, experiences need to learn to trust before they will be able to make decisions about home care. So how do you go about forming a view and making a trusting relationship in this sort of new world? Uh, and it'll be interesting to watch that unfold. Um, and then the gateway, um, Glenn uh, talked further about needing to support the diverse needs of older people, the education and training to expand uh, care workers, research undertaken to better understand how consumer-directed care works in relation to disadvantaged groups such as people with dementia, and how the decision-making process can be made more sensitive to their needs. 
And he further went on, and a real, I've, I've got my notes here, and this is in big capital and bold writing. People with dementia want to feel central to the decision-making process and should be enabled to achieve their goals while managing risks. And the emphasis on managing risks is something that will come through quite a bit in my presentation. And so the four abilities model is something I'd like to introduce to you, if you haven't already heard of it, is where it talks about a definition of capacity defined as four abilities. So number one is to understand relevant information. Number two is appreciate the nature of one's own situation and the consequences. Reason with information, be able to make a comparison and weight options. And then finally, your fourth point there is to state a choice. And so there's a real greyness, if you like, around um, this issue of capacity and decision-making for any older person. But once you introduce cognitive impairment into that mix, it gets very murky indeed. And this nature of risk is really important. And there's a lovely quote from Gandhi up on the screen. So freedom is not worth having if it does not include the freedom to make mistakes. And I would ask you how many of your workplaces allow you the freedom to make mistakes yourself, and then further to knock on down the line, how many of your organisations let you make, allow your clients the freedom to make mistakes in their choices? Will they be allowed to do that in the future? And that's going to be a really critical test of your organisation in the future under a consumer-directed individualised funding arrangement, respecting the choices of the people whose package it is. It's not going to be the organisations anymore. And so people looking for simple answers, it's not black, it's not white, but instead it's very grey. <laughs> Couldn't help myself, sorry. <laughs> and so how do we go about determining capacity and this ability to decide? And so as you can see from my humorous slides, it's not all or nothing, it's not black or white. And particularly when you introduce dementia, it gets really, really grey. And so there's no gold standard test of capacity. And that's really important to point out. There is no gold standard test of capacity. And it's often deferred to lawyers or doctors to make a call on capacity. But do you honestly think that they're experienced in dealing with people with dementia? Probably not. The other thing about it is it's decision specific. And so it must be viewed on that basis. It's important to note that capacity is about understanding and appreciating information as according to that four abilities model. It is not about the ability to carry out tasks. Okay, so there's a further element that's clouding that. So how do you get into the NDIS or into the aged care system? You have functional impairment. So capacity is not functional impairment. And so what gets you over the line and into the system is then perhaps not what prevents you or enables you to make decisions once you're in. It gets greyer. Okay, it's not about making a good or right decision. So that's another important distinction about capacity. So you as an eminent professional might be working with someone and you may disagree with their decisions and you know it's going to be wrong. But you don't have the right to sort of impose your judgment upon someone else's decision making. If they have capacity, allow them to make that choice and make mistakes, as I've said. And so no assumptions can be made about capacity when it comes to dementia as well. When you start talking about MMSE scores, mini mental scores, they don't automatically indicate capacity or lack of capacity. And a perception of a person's capacity should be influenced 
um, should not be influenced, sorry, by characteristics such as age or the disability or the medical condition or their appearance, their language, the way they speak, dress, act or behave. To assume that a person does not have the capacity on the basis of any of these may be considered discrimination under the law. And when thinking about a person's capacity, it's important to differentiate between the person's ability to make a decision and the decision that they make. To go against the advice of others does not always indicate incapacity. On the contrary, it could indicate very high levels of capacity. Okay, so talking a bit about this, uh, and then always like to talk about dementia itself, and so some of the signs of dementia, you guys will be witness to this pretty much every day. But the impact of dementia, if you're thinking about those kind of backdrop of capacity. So you've got issues with memory, you've got issues with insight, orientation, perception, the ability to plan and organise. Um, people with dementia really struggle to um, have a, if you like, a future orientation, a sense of themselves in the future. So that um, has a very strong bearing on the uh, capacity and the ability to recall what a decision means in terms of repercussions and consequences. Um, the re ability to reason or make decisions also gets uh, impaired. Comprehension and concentration, uh, language skills, the filtering systems and then the control mechanisms, including emotions, which came out in some of your answers at the start uh, around the five whys. So capacity can be affected by a number of factors. It operates on a continuum and it can fluctuate for a person. They can be uh, good, bad, indifferent, at any um, different period of days, over weeks. And it's difficult to determine consistently. Um, and that different physicians assessing the same person have actually failed to agree on whether they uh, have a definition of capacity under the law. And so the things that can affect a person's capacity is the type of decision being made, um, such as daily living or finances or health, or uh, the timing um, in terms of what period of the day may, might it be, um, how close it is to the actual decision event occurring, uh, the complexity of the decision, uh, the amount of information given. Obviously, if you bombard anyone with a lot of information, that will impact on their ability to make a, um, a good choice. There's actually some really good stuff um, around behavioural economics. I'm a closet behavioural economics fan as a policy person. There's a great study about people um, trying to choose baked beans in a supermarket. And when um, these economists did this test, they put 20 different varieties of baked beans in a supermarket. And then in another one, they put just three varieties. And the one with the three varieties, more baked beans sold. Because people reached decision paralysis in the 20 baked beans. They couldn't make a choice. They couldn't distinguish between them. So they went without. Um, the other factors are the communication um, between the person making the decision and the person who requires the decision. Obviously, uh, the strength of that relationship and the um, clarity of the communication is important. Uh, the environment in which the person is making the decision, so is it in their own home, is it somewhere else, is it somewhere that they're uncomfortable with, a hospital is a pretty awful place to be making decisions for a person with dementia. Um, the person's experience of, so their prior knowledge of or familiarity with the topic, uh, the person's health and whether the person um, is uh, being under stress at the particular time. 
And so whilst a person may demonstrate a lack of capacity in one area, such as managing the complex financial decisions, that doesn't automatically mean they're not able to make decisions in other areas of their life about what to eat, what to wear, what to do at particular times of the day. Um, and so when considering capacity, it should always be assumed in the first instance that the person has it rather than not. Okay, really important point. Assume capacity rather than not. So making decisions, exercising preferences and expressing opinions all contribute positively to a person's quality of life, their sense of self and their identity. And if you've done studies in dementia and you've heard of a chap named Tom Kitwood, who's the godfather of person-centred dementia care um, from the University of Bradford in the UK, those words, quality of life, sense of self, identity, are the hallmarks of what he defines as good person-centred dementia care. And so what we would believe strongly is that everyone has the right to make their own decisions and they should be provided with the necessary support to do so. Something to help you in terms of a framework. Uh, borrow this from uh, a woman named Diana Palmer who presented at the New South Wales Community Options Conference two years ago. If you can't, can you all see the writing? Is it clear enough for you? Yeah, okay. Um, so everyone has the right to make decisions about the things that affect them. So first principles that I just described. And then the second point, capacity must be assumed. Third point, every effort should be made to support people to make their own decisions. So that's around the communication, the timing, the location, where it's done, that kind of stuff. And the capacity is decision specific. So it is for that instance and that instance only. And then people have the right to learn from that experience. People have the right to change their minds. People have the right to make decisions others might not agree with. So that's a pretty sound seven principles from which to work from and a cascading sort of um, approach, if you like, starting from the first base that people have the right to make decisions. So how might you do that? So let's go through some of the tips, if you like. So provide relevant information consistently is a clear one. Communicate information in a way that meets the client's needs. Respect their privacy. Consider the cultural or religious background. Choose the location carefully. Consider the timing and ask if they would like a support person present. And from some of the descriptions that you gave at the start around the system problems, there's a lot of those that you will find difficult to do just because of the nature of your job, I suspect. But there are certainly things that you can do in your day-to-day -day situations to change the dynamic and perhaps reverse some of that perception that the problem lies with the person with dementia. It's not their fault they've got dementia. It's your job to work with them and make their situation better. And so the last point, ask if they would like a support person present, is always something that you could draw on. That's not related to your system. That's about using the supports available to them. And one of the other things that we talk about often in terms of our good dementia care is talking about a triangle of care, the relationship-centred model. So you have a care practitioner, the person with dementia, the other arm of the triangle is a support person, often the carer. And here's something else to help you. So a capacity assessment flowchart so I don't know about you, but I love a, a flowchart. I love a visual. 
Um, and so what this takes you through is a, um, a flowchart adapted from the St Vincent Hospital Handbook of Clinical Psychogeriatrics. And thankfully it's easier to look at than say. Um, so I think it illustrates quite well um, the processes that need to be gone through to assist a person in decision making and to persist with options until it may be necessary to appoint a substitute decision maker. How many of you have been down that path, going off to the guardianship division as it's now called? Yeah, a few hands. Enjoyed the experience? Want to do it again? <laughs> no. It's very much a last resort. So if you can actually you know, change this process and make this process work better for you, then you'll help yourself avoid the guardianship division. The president, Malcolm Chivins, is a lovely man. Uh, he's a good friend of ours as well. Um, and he very much sees himself and the division and what it does in terms of its three-person hearings as the very last option when nothing else works, when mediation hasn't worked. So you don't want to get to that point. So anything you can do to intervene and change processes and follow good practice that is being presented to you today will help you avoid the guardianship division at all costs. <clears throat> so some of the examples uh, of efforts to facilitate decision making could include uh, using an interpreter, obviously it goes without saying if the person's from uh, a non-English speaking background, um, providing information in different formats, so using cue cards, visuals um, rather than uh, writing, memory aids such as written notes and diaries, speaking more loudly, uh, it can be a bit trite but sometimes it works, and providing information, uh, written information for someone with a hearing impairment. Um, and sorry, I should have said these slides will be available to you as well, so you'll have access to these um, particular tips and advice. Okay, so moving on to concerns about uh, capacity. So decisions that put the client at harm. Um, so p concerns for a person's capacity may be raised when a, a decision they make would put them at harm or is very different from decisions they would have usually made or a worrying incident occurs. And this is where that risk stuff starts creeping into our conversation. And so these occurrences are known as triggers, quite simply because they're a trigger for something to happen. And the triggers can ha include problems with memory, obviously, being confused about things the person understood previously, trouble with reading or writing, or how a person is looking after themselves or their home, you're noticing changes there, not paying bills, or spending money in a way that is out of character for them. And when such a trigger occurs, it's important to discuss concerns with the person to ascertain whether there is a reasonable explanation for the trigger, rather than jump to the immediate conclusion that they lack capacity. Open-ended questions about the issue, which allow the person to demonstrate that they understand the problem, appreciate the choices available to them, and the consequences of the choices they make. Okay, it's that four abilities model coming through again. Appreciate and understand consequences. So, Let's talk about uh, this fictional woman named Mavis. Mavis lives alone and she has a small fire in her kitchen because she has left a pot on the stove. Her daughter says Mavis has early Alzheimer's and believes she is no longer able to live alone and should go into a nursing home. Uh, does that sound familiar to anyone? Something? Yeah? Oh yeah, good, good. Okay, so let me run you through two scenarios. Let's talk about scenario one. After the fire, Mavis's care worker talks to her about the incident and offers the option of having meals on wheels. 
Mavis responds to this by saying she'd rather be independent and cook for herself. In her opinion, dying in a house fire would be preferable to eating that awful food. <laughs> or going into care. You can see our old people, they're not too fictitious, are they? Um, she knows she is forgetful and thinks her daughter is interfering in her life. On talking further, Mavis is able to discuss the risks involved in the ch her choice of living alone and demonstrates that she accepts these risks. She agrees to have smoke alarms installed in her kitchen. Through the conversation with the care worker, Mavis has shown she understands the situation, the choices and the associated risks and has agreed to live at risk whilst taking options to mitigate the risks. Nice one, scenario one. Let's talk about scenario two. So when speaking to her care worker, Mavis does not remember the fire, being taken to hospital after the fire, or the fact that there have been two previous fires in her kitchen. She says that her daughter made up the story about the fire. Is this also sounding familiar? She refuses any services offered by her care worker. The care worker returns twice more, and each time Mavis denies she has memory problems and the fires, although there is ample evidence to the contrary. She repute, uh, repeatedly refuses offers of services and support made by the care worker because she states she has no problems and therefore needs no help. She is angry and defensive. From these interactions, the care worker concludes that Mavis is lacking capacity as she denies her problem, doesn't understand her choices, or the consequences. Alternative arrangements would need to be made in regard to decision making on Mavis's behalf. Hello, guardianship division. If there are concerns about a, oh actually no, the daughter would probably support that move, so no, you can head, no, you don't have to go to the guardian division, forget I said that. So if there are concerns about a person's capacity in the short term, informal support arrangements or a substitute decision maker can be used to make decisions. However, in the longer term, a formal assessment of capacity may be required and alternate arrangements for decision-making made. At all times during this process, the person's autonomy and privacy should be respected. And there's that nasty P word, privacy. To preempt this situation, service providers could obtain information regarding their client's arrangements for enduring guardian and power of attorney as part of the assessment process. That's not betraying any privacy issues. It's important to keep in mind that even if incapacity is determined for one decision, the person may still have ability to make decisions about other things. So Mavis could probably still make decisions about other things. And she should be included in the decision-making processes undertaken on her behalf at all possible opportunities. All right, so we've talked a little bit about capacity. Now I want to talk to you about something, um, actually, that I just overheard Stella talking about, about abuse. So as you probably know, there's an upper house inquiry into elder abuse in New South Wales going on at the moment. So where I began talking uh, this afternoon a bit about the context for this is consumer-directed care and individualised funding. So in the future, money will be placed into the hands, or not you know, wads of cash, but you know what I mean, into the hands of clients. This potentially exposes them to a heightened level of abuse because where there's money, there's misbehaviour. You only have to watch episodes of Midsummer Murders to understand where there's money, there's misbehaviour. And Poirot's onto it too. 
So, my wife's a closet fan of those shows. Um, the potential for abuse. So, this is your profile of someone who is at high risk of abuse. Female, frail, elderly, living alone, isolated socially, few or no relatives and considerable assets. Now, who does that sound like? That sounds like your archetypal community care client. And these are the very people that in a very short period of time will be given packages to manage for themselves. And will have decision-making rights about where money should be spent that is for them and their care needs and their care goals. So there's going to be a lot of people that are inveigling themselves. We did some research on financial abuse of older people and what we found was there was a lot of people that started drifting into people with dementia's life and they started in, you know, ingratiating themselves and started, you know, and you see it on the 6.30 shows. Well, I think they're actually moved to 7 o'clock now. The current affairs, the today, tonight, you know, the horrible stories of uh, a person without capacity with dementia, mental health, drug and alcohol. Basically, they have a cognitive impairment of some kind, but they have considerable assets and resources, and suddenly those considerable assets and resources are shrinking, and they're ending up in the pocket or the bank accounts of the person who just suddenly appears in their life. So there are some danger signs there and some uh, alarm bells that need to be rung about this future. And for you guys at the coalface of that, a need to be alert to these issues and know what to do when it uh, emerges. And so the potential for abuse, so some of the warning signs. So I talked about this already, the decisions that are out of character, that relates to capacity as well. But then there's also a decision that's out of character that may be relating to abuse. You're not able to pay the bills or buy food, go on outings that they could previously because there's just not as much money around anymore. Someone's taking their pension. So money or precious items go missing. The new friend or relative moves in. This new person is dominant and controlling and they always seem to have this particular personality type as well, it seems. And they answer questions for the person. We had this great case study of a, um, a case manager for a particular organisation talking about how any time they tried to do a um, case conference or a care planning meeting, the actual client could never get a word in edgeways. It was always this new dominant person in the uh, life of the client. And so they become heavily involved in decision making. So sorry. Um, so this is our um, paper on financial abuse of people with dementia. Um, if you're interested in reading the report, you can access it um, through that link. Um, that also takes you to all our recent uh, research papers. Many of them will be of interest to you. We've done um, other research on uh, moving into care, which one of my staff, I believe, presented at this forum at last year. Um, and also uh, papers on exercise and physical activity for people with dementia and the benefits of it, um, things that you can incorporate into your practice. Uh, we also did a um, research paper on living alone with dementia, so that highly vulnerable cohort that is you know, a red flag for abuse. Um, what we found, uh, oh, there's also a, a Q&A sheet, sorry, that's also on our, um, uh, our help sheets. If you haven't found those, uh, you should look them up on our fightdementia.org.au and there's big um, picture tabs for our help sheets that cover a range of topics related to dementia. Very helpful for you, very helpful for your clients, very helpful for your family members. 
So what we found in that um, discussion paper was that it's very difficult to estimate, calculate the prevalence of abuse um, because people are reluctant to report it. Um, and it occurs in a multitude of ways. There's a great deal of stigma and embarrassment about being abused financially. And of course, when there's dementia, sad to say, they may not remember it or understand what's going on. Um, and I'm sure you won't be surprised that our research found that the majority of abuse is perpetrated within families. So, you know, the current affairs today, tonight shows, they do show the shonky tradesmen and these, you know, mysterious people, but 90% of the abuse that we were able to sort of um, find is actually um, perpetrated by family members or people within close proximity to that person's life. Um, and 65% of the respondents that were the service providers that responded to our survey identified children as the abusers. 65%, it's the children. What's the saying? Blood's thick but money's thicker or something like that. 95% um, said they were known to the person. So our research actually found a higher percentage than the, um, most of the other research. And really sadly, a considerable proportion of financial abuse is actually carried out by the person with the power of attorney. So it's legal. There is nothing you can do in that situation except try to get the power of attorney overturned through the, um, the court system. We also found that there's no mandatory reporting of abuse. Um, if a criminal offence, um, you would report it to police. But because it's financial abuse, it happens within families. There's this great sort of uncertainty. Is that actually a crime? Because it's happening within families. And if the power of attorney is in place, it's not a crime. So what do you do? So a great deal of uncertainty among service providers that see this. Um, and so what you should do, obviously, in that instance, is follow the New South Wales government's interagency protocol for responding to abuse of older people um, and discuss planning ahead with your clients as well. So if they haven't got a power of attorney, try to encourage them to get one and always try to encourage them to see that the person who's managing their financial decisions should be someone that they trust and is not necessarily their adult children. <clears throat> All right, so flipping back to the aged care policy context as well. Um, a couple of years ago, the government ran the consumer-directed care pilot. That was evaluated by KPMG. What they found was that um, case managers, which are often nurses, need individual assessment and goal-based planning skills, so that doesn't really change. Client capacity building and case management experience. And the ca capacity building is starting to be in a different area. It's capacity to make choices, more complex choices, different choices, choices from a bigger decision set. They needed aged care knowledge but not preconceived ideas and, if you like, fitting people into boxes so they then have lateral thinking. And the real kicker was the financial skills. So you need to be able to manage and explain budgets to clients. And what the evaluations found was that the case managers don't necessarily have experience of managing their own budgets and finances on the home front, let alone be able to help someone else make sense of theirs. What they also found was that you needed to have commitment to the principles of consumer-directed care. You needed to be a believer. You had to have this fervent belief that this was the right thing to be doing and it was a good thing for people with dementia and frail older people in Australia. 
And so where does that get us to? So in terms of CDC, um, as we're moving down this path, dementia and decision making, you have a balance to strike between least restriction and this phrase dignity of risk. Who's heard of dignity of risk as an expression? Only a couple of hands. Have you worked in disability? Yes. Yeah, so that's, that's where the expressions largely come from and it's really going to start taking off in aged care now. This concept of dignity of risk is what I've, if you like, been peppering this talk about, is the, if you like, the freedom to make choices and do something and allow them to make mistakes. Don't deny people the rights to do something that they would ordinarily have the right to do if they would ordinarily make that decision to do that. If it's out of character, you probably wouldn't let them do it. But there's a, some great stories of um, aged care providers who have facilitated choice and given maximum dignity of risk. And the one I always talk about is the um, aged care facility up on the central coast, Starrett Lodge, where um, many of you might have seen this at conferences or seen the clips on YouTube of the 90-something-year-old man whose bucket list was to go skydiving. And they did it. And so they um, set up these fundraising drives within the facility and you raise money and then, OK, I can afford to go skydiving now. So they not only have a purpose and a reason to get up every day to get to that goal, but then when they have that goal, they have that experience of doing that. And so they've actually filmed it. It's on YouTube. You can find it. And um, the manager of the facility is said that the 10 seconds that the man lay on the ground after he landed and didn't move was the longest 10 <laughs> seconds of his life. But he got up. He got up. But that's dignity of risk. That's allowing people to live a life filled with meaning, purpose and uh, excitement in that instance. You would not catch me jumping out of a plane, but that's what he wanted to do. But on the flip side of that is that's what we're trying to say we want you to be doing and encouraging that sort of practice. But then you have these quality and the legal and the contractual obligations and a sort of a rigid mindset within the Department of now Health and Ageing, formerly Department of Social Services, formerly Department of Health and Ageing. And so to enable this shift to occur, what we're seeing is that case management role in the future in uh, community home care space is going to be a lot about education, not just your education, but the education of the clients and a mentoring type role to encourage them to make decisions and explore options and work out, well, if you do that, then you can't do this. If you do these, you could have had two of those. You know, there's this real sort of mentoring development role that needs to take place. And you're coaching them in decision making. And your knowledge of aged care far exceeds theirs. So you have this information asymmetry. You know more, but they actually now have more power than you in the future. And so you're going to have this coaching role to encouraging them to make better decisions and live a better life with the money that they have available to facilitate their choices. And you're sorry, you're going to have to get financially literate as well. Sorry. And so what are the, um, the key messages I want you to take away from this? So a critical enabler of all of this is informed decision making. Um, both for you to be fully informed and also for the client to be fully informed about what their rights, their roles, their responsibilities and their obligations are. <clears throat> and what you need to be then doing is obviously empowering clients to exercise choice over things that impact them and then control the circumstances which impact them. And as 
I said before, clients may need education and support to do this, and I'll change that. Clients will need support and education to do this. What's become abundantly clear in the last couple of months is CDC has got you know, bigger and exposed to a bigger audience is this great fear that's emerging in the client base, the consumer population. They don't know anything about this and then they hit this really complex aged care system and it's very overwhelming. You have a great responsibility on your hands to guide them and nurture them and mentor them through it. And so, again, we're back to some of the stuff you were talking about in your five whys, that system stuff. This won't just happen. So it needs resources, such as yourselves, but you also need time to invest in this. You need training. You need new thinking. You need new ways of doing. The old ways of doing aged care are not going to be what's done in a year or two's time. You need to adapt and evolve to this as well. And so your organisations need to invest in the systems to support you to operate differently, otherwise they're letting you down. And they need to invest in you, the people that are going to actually be the front of their organisation that's creating value for them and bringing in new clients and retaining the old clients. So you become extremely valuable to them in the future. And so to revert back to the principal topic of capacity, is that capacity must always be assumed. So, point number one. Clients have a right to make their own choices, decisions, they make mistakes and they take risks. Be aware of the indicators of incapacity and how to start asking questions to determine if capacity is present for that particular moment, for that particular decision. Have the systems in place to respond to this. So when things go bad, you know you've got the interagency protocol. Know what you have to do there. When you're talking about um, exercising decision rights, be, be aware of the information you need to help the clients make those decisions. And if they can't make a decision, know where to go to get a decision for them. And lastly, you need to adjust your philosophy and your practice. As I've said, what you do now is not going to be what you're doing in a year or two's time. And one of my favourite quotes that really ties this all up, far from being a sign of intellectual inferiority, the capacity to err or make mistakes is crucial to human cognition. It is inextricable from some of our most humane and honourable qualities. Empathy, optimism, imagination, conviction and courage. And I think all of us would want to work in an organisation that allows us to make mistakes and learn from it. Um, and I think our clients would probably also want that same level of respect given back to them. So, happy to take any questions and I think I've got you on an early mark. <laughs> yes. Oh, consumer-directed care. Yes, I, I think we will have help sheets on delirium. So if you look at help sheets, I don't know, there's about 80 of them. I don't know every single title, but I'm pretty confident there's one there on delirium. If not, another good resource to look at 
that's actually hospital-based is some work that was done by the ACI, Agency for Clinical Innovation, on the confused, hospitalised, yeah. Okay. I work in an acute hospital and we're updating our um, dementia and delirium for um, post-operative patients. I work in anaesthetics recovery okay. and we've got issues with patients. Okay, that, that so if have, you want... Yeah, and uh, we are, uh, that's why I... Yeah, so if you want help around that, we're not the place. Glenn Pang, the Agency for Clinical Innovation. Glenn Pang. He's busy in Westmead today um, with an event that the ACI is hosting, but Glenn Pang, Agency for Clinical Innovation in New South Wales Health. So he's the leader of the um, aged care network of ACI, yeah. So he's, he's had um, responsibility for the CHOPS program, as it's called, the Confused Hospitalised Older Persons Study, and now rolling out a lot of that material into the hospitals. Yeah, and we had a nurse practitioner speaking on that as well at the last forum, I think. So, and I think there's actually still some resources on our website. But if you yeah, access it through Chops, then you'll probably find someone there it's as well. The power of attorney. Yeah, yep, no, we hear, we hear that story very often. It's, it's really hard. Once that power of attorney is in place and there's enough, if you like, evidence and justification that that sister can prove that the finances are you know, being used for the purposes of supporting their mother, it's really hard, really hard. And I don't think there's an easy answer around that. The guardianship division operates from a, um, a legal perspective. So in that instance, it's kind of legal. It's immoral, but it's not illegal. And that's, that's one of the real struggles that we face with this financial abuse stuff as well. I didn't go into is the separation of immoral versus illegal. Once you get the power of attorney and you have that, it's entirely immoral, makes you sick in the stomach, but there's not much you can do about it. Yep. Yeah. If, well, if she can prove that the mother didn't have capacity when the power of attorney was signed, then there's grounds to challenge its legality because mum didn't have capacity and understand what she was doing. But if that's also a really difficult decision to get overturned because how do you prove she didn't have capacity at the time because she was only there with the sister? Yeah, yeah. And I've heard Malcolm say that exactly. He, Mal Malcolm may have actually cited this case elsewhere. Yeah, the president. Yeah, sorry, there's another question. Oh, it's just the comment. Um, there's a 
There's a thing called a capacity toolkit that's got really good information on it. And oh, I forgot to mention that. Yeah, thank and, you. And you can have more than one power of, attor of yes. attorney, so that that's a bit of a safeguard too. Yeah. So you don't just give all the power to one person. Yeah, thank you for that. I did forget to mention that. Sorry. The Attorney General's Department did produce a little booklet called the Capacity Toolkit. It has, oh, I think, ten or so different chapters. Um, you can get them for free from the Attorney General's Department. I would suggest you do. If you run team meetings, they're a really good format to do a um, chapter per team meeting. They've got some really good um, cases, some good development sort of um, scenarios, uh, and good options to work through and knowledge to gain from it. It's a wonderful resource. Thank you. I did forget to mention that. Thank you. No other questions? Thank you. So that's it from our Aged Care Forum speakers for now. Some great insight there from Brendan and our other speakers over the past three episodes. I do hope you're enjoying the podcast so far. You can send any questions or comments to us here by emailing us at theshiftpodcast at nswnma.sn.au and don't forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or SoundCloud. Tune in again next week for some more great speakers on The Shift. Yeah.